our penultimate study in the prophet of hope, Zechariah chapter uh, 12. Remember, if uh, you have difficulty finding that, it's you go to Matthew and go back two books. Uh, Zechariah chapter uh, 13, excuse me, not chapter 12, chapter 13. And we'll read the chapter in its entirety. This is the word of God. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he'll say, I'm no prophet, I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He'll say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones, and the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord remains forever. If you recall from last time, and as we began chapter 12, it begins there, verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. We saw that chapters 12 through the uh, close of the book is this uh, oracle pronouncing restoration on the people of Israel. It's a vision that looks forward to that day of restoration, the day which is repeated numerous times in chapter 13 or chapter 12 and chapter uh, 13 and then 14 behold a day is coming is how 14 begins so that day uh, we talked about last time is actually multiple days a future day uh, in some instances but there are other instances in which what Zechariah is referring to could have been fulfilled in in his own day or in his people's day, but then we saw some aspects of chapter 12 were fulfilled at Calvary, the, the day of the cross, and yet other things we still are waiting for, we're still looking for, on uh, the return of Christ, the consummation of all things. Well, part of the restoration for Israel's people involved both the conquering of their enemies and also the cleansing of their hearts. Chapter 13 continues this theme of cleansing. A fountain has been opened on that day, verse 1, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and from uncleanness. And the question now is, what sort of effect will that cleansing have? What will it look like for a nation 
if they are purified by their Lord, what change will take place? And the first thing that will happen for a nation that is purified by the Lord is that their idols will be eradicated. That's the first thing. Verse 2, we see this. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. So the idols will be eradicated from the land. Um, It's not simply that the people are gathering up their, their sort of household Buddhas or their household gods that they worship and and tossing them in the trash. Um, It's actually more intense than that because God says he'll cut off the names of the idols. And in in biblical terminology, a name is not just a designation for something or someone, uh, that that thing you say so that that you can uh, designate it apart from other things. My name is Jonathan. My son's name is Jacob. It's more than that. The idea is that in the Bible, the name, especially when you're referring to uh, gods or idols or powers, the name is that power. Um, we saw this morning that Paul exor- um, exorcised the demon from that slave girl in Acts 16 by saying, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you come out of her. Right? He's invoking authority, power, the power of, of God. And God now is saying in, in, through Zechariah, that on this day of cleansing, of restoration, there will be no such name, no such power, no such authority for the false gods that Israel is continually, again and again, drawn to worship. Now, if you're thinking, well, wait a second, there is only one true and living God. There's, there is only one God that has power, that has authority, There is only one God that has a real name in that sense. So what would that mean for the only God who has power to take away the power from gods that never had power in the first place? What does this mean for him to say cut off the names of these gods that really don't have names in that sort of sense? Well, I think that's where the second part of the verse is so instructive. He says, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. Our idols, because we still have them, right? Idolatry is not just something in the Old Testament. We still have idols of the heart, but our idols only have as much power as we give them. They only have as much power as we give them. It isn't that, you know, money or the desire for fame or recognition or uh, pleasures like sex and alcohol or, or, or drugs. It's not that these things have inherent power within them that, that force us, even as though against our will, to bow down and to, to follow after them and to do their will. The problem is us, not the idol. The problem is us. The problem is that we give them a sort of power. Uh, we, we give them our hope. We give them our desire. We seek from them the things, though, that only God can give. Things like peace. Things like happiness. And, uh, above all, eternal life. So imagine, can you, a day 
where you aren't tempted, even for a millisecond, to put your hope in something other than, or someone other than, the one true and living God. Why? Because you won't even remember that these other so-called gods exist. You won't, they won't come to mind. Imagine a day when, when your thoughts are filled entirely, completely, with good things of God, the one true God. That's what Zechariah is prophesying about. There is a day coming when I will cut off their memory. You won't even call out to them. You won't even invoke their names because you won't think of them. That's what God is holding out to Israel. That's what we need so badly. Augustine, in his confessions, describes that you know, he, he, tried, he struggled a lot with sexual sin, Augustine of Hippo. And he describes himself uh, trying to free himself from the sexual temptation and sexual sins. And, and so he would seclude himself uh, there in, um, in Egypt. But he said that even in seclusion, the thoughts of the dancing girls from Rome that he had encountered in his youth would come back to him, right? He would still have these memories. Sin lingers in the mind. But in this day that Zechariah is pointing us to, even the memory of idols will be taken away from God's people. So, this is a major part of being fully cleansed and fully restored to God, that, that these idols will be eradicated, not primarily from their homes, but from their hearts. That's what it will take in part to be reconciled, restored to full fellowship with God and that we're only ever seeking after him and nothing and no one else. The second thing that will happen on this day when the fountain is open to cleanse the people of their sins is that the prophets, the false prophets will be purged. The idols will be eradicated and the false prophets will be purged. We see this at the close of verse 2 through verse um, 6. So the second half, verse 2 says, I will also remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. There is something about the prophets there who are prophesying that produces a spirit of uncleanness in the people. The ESV renders the Hebrew uh, verbatim here when it says, I will remove from the land the prophets. But what's envisioned here, what's in mind here, are false prophets. Uh, True prophets are always and only a good thing for God's people. Uh, Oftentimes they... God's people foolishly reject those prophets, uh, but false prophets were always and are only a problem for God's people, and that's what's envisioned here, removing false prophets. And so if you have uh, some other translations, they, they um, supplant the, the word, they supply the word false just to help make it a little clearer. So the people's hearts will be made right because they're Their false and frail loves of of idols will be removed. But now their minds will be cleared. Um, Their their worship will be pure and true to God alone with a right heart. But now they'll they'll no longer be threatened from within by false teachers who would lead them astray from misunderstanding God's word. Because now uh, they will understand it uh, correctly with false prophets being removed. Now, as I read this earlier, maybe you thought... Wow, this sounds, uh, God's word against the false prophets sounds harsh, sounds intense. And if you didn't, I don't think you were paying attention. Let me read again for you verse 3. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live. This is the parents speaking to their children, uh, their child who's a false prophet. You speak lies in the, names of the, in the name of the Lord, 
And so his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. Uh, what's what's um, in, in mind here is actually a passage from Deuteronomy, if you want to turn there. Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13 gives us the provision for this seemingly cruel and unusual punishment. Verse 6, if your brother, the son of your mother or your son or your daughter or the wife you embrace or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which is what false prophets by definition would be doing which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. And your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. So there we're learning that the punishment for somebody who would try to lure God's people away from true, unadulterated, sincere worship is, is the death penalty. And then there's this provision put in where to ensure that family members wouldn't try to conceal that kind of sin, cover it up, or interfere in any way with this judgment being pronounced, uh, with the imposition of this penalty, which is stoning, verse 9 tells us, the family members, and in some instances the parents, were actually to be the ones to throw the first stone, and then the people after them. Now, in Zechariah, instead of stoning, it's piercing. You see that with a sword, and his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. That's the same verb we used in chapter, or that was used in chapter 12. We saw that last time when God describes what it's like to have a people keep sinning against him. I am like the one whom you have pierced. You'll look on the one whom you have pierced and you will mourn. And so they've pierced God's heart and so their punishment will be in kind. They shall be pierced. And this fierce and foreboding a word of, word of, of punishment will make these false prophets kind of cower. That's verses 4 through 6, which is a little kind of hard to understand what's going on there. But, but the idea here is that they're going to try to hide the fact that they ever participated in false uh, prophesying so that they, they aren't um, uh, stoned in this gruesome way, put to death in this gruesome way. So on that day, verse 4, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He'll be ashamed that he prophesied. And he won't put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive people. That is, in order to deceive them, he won't wear this cloak made of hair. Who were those people who were known for wearing garments of camel hair, right? Uh, Elijah, the prophet, and John the Baptist, the last of the Old Covenant prophets. So it's kind of like the, the uniform for a prophet. He's not going to wear that anymore. He doesn't want people to know. And if somebody comes up to him and says, hey, wait a second, Aren't you that guy who used to go around prophesying and saying, what are you talking about? I'm just a farmer. I'm just a farmer, right? Verse 6, I'm no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil. And then they'll say, but what are those wounds on your back or in the Hebrew, on your hands and your arms, literally? 
the back of your arms. What's probably envisioned here is the self-inflicting lacerations that false prophets would, would um, receive during moments of ecstatic prophesying. Think of Elijah and Mount Carmel, the Mount Carmel contest, right, with Baal and, and Yahweh, that showdown. And, and the, the idea here is who will send fire down from heaven and what do the false prophets do when Baal doesn't show up, when he doesn't answer? They start cutting themselves They start spilling their own blood in hopes that that will wake Baal up and he'll come and help them. So something like that is is happening here. And the people say, we see these these wounds on you that that seem like the wounds that false prophets who would would cut themselves when they cry out to their gods have. And and they come up with this pathetic excuse. No, I I received this this at a party with some friends. That's the idea there in verse 6. The idea is essentially that um, the, the judgment is so harsh uh, that, that they don't want to ever be associated with having been prophets. And so these fanatics will be removed from God's people. And therefore, so too will the impulse to follow their teaching. People will no longer be drawn astray from them. Now, we are not there. When it talks about on that day, we're, this, that day has not happened. The church is still infiltrated with false teachers, which is to say... Nothing of our own weaknesses and our own lack of insight as we open up God's word, and we can um, be unwittingly gone, you know, set astray just by our own ignorance as we study the scriptures. But there is coming a day uh, when false prophets will be no more, and that will be the day when we know as we are known. Jeremiah speaks of it like this. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So, that day is, is yet coming. Full restoration, full, rec- full reconciliation to God requires the, the, the eradication of idols, right? A pure, a, 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 a heart that is fully set on God and it also requires the removal of, of ignorance, right? A mind that knows God's will. Well, then we come to verse 7. And most Bibles, they'll even kind of offset this text so that you can see it's written in slightly a different style. We've moved now, and it, the tone changes. We go from prose to poetry. We've gone from eradicating idols and purging prophets now to talking about striking a shepherd, What does this have to do with the overall theme of restoring God's people? And I want to say to you now, and we'll just hang with me for a few more minutes, and and I'll hopefully prove to you what I mean by this. But what does this have to do with restoring God's people to himself? This has everything to do with it. It's all right here. All right here in verses 7 through 9. If you're to be reconciled to God, you need to understand what Zechariah is saying in these verses. To fully unpack it, let's ask three questions of this section. First, who is this shepherd? Who is this shepherd that is struck? The identity of the shepherd can be determined from the context of this passage alone um, if you're armed with some good theology. Good theology. And that, that um, determination can then also be confirmed by outside passages, which we'll look at in a moment as well. But we can... we, we have everything we need right there in verse 7. 
Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the most important clue that we need. When it says that there's a man standing next to God, the language is not so much of location, there's somebody right next to me, as it is uh, the language of position or, or prominence, right? The Hebrew word actually means peer. There is a, a peer of mine here. Uh, one Old Testament scholar puts it like this. He whom God calls his peer or his neighbor cannot be a mere man, but can only be one who participates in the divine nature or is himself divine in his essence. So is there any man who could be a peer with the eternal God? The answer is yes, of course. There was one. There is one, Jesus of Nazareth. And he can be called the man who stands next to the Lord of hosts because he has, in fact, for all eternity, been standing there beside God, inside God, as part of the triune Godhead. And the fact that this shepherd is God, though, is only half the mystery. The other half is that this God could also be man. But that's what the doctrine of the incarnation teaches us, that the Son of God comes in the flesh, and so we can affirm that he is holy and truly and fully God and holy and truly and fully man, two distinct natures, one person now and forever. Anselm of Canterbury said the holy back in the 11th century why this had to be, curdeus homo, this is the Latin language, why the God-man, or why did God need to be man? The debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. Thus, it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his divine person, so that he who in his own nature ought to pay, yet could not, should be in a person who can pay. That's what we have here. This is, this is incarnational theology, that, that God is speaking to one who is my shepherd, not a shepherd, not their shepherd, my shepherd, my peer, my equal, the one at my right hand. Who is the shepherd? The shepherd is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the next question who strikes the shepherd? And the answer is God himself does. He is the one who beckons the sword, the, the instrument of his wrath and judgment to awaken, right? Verse 7, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. It's as though God's, God's judgment has been, has been dormant for a time. And God rouses his wrath against his own Equal, his own peer, the one that we know to be his own son. This echoes Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Interestingly, the previous chapter spoke of how, well, we saw it right there in verse uh, verse 10. They will look on me, on him whom they have pierced and shall mourn. So chapter 12 pictures the Son of God as the one whom we have pierced, and we know that's true. It was my sin 
that nailed him there until it was accomplished. And yet now chapter 13 is letting us know, even though we pierced him, it was the will of God that this was to happen. It was part of God's plan. And so it's not wrong to say, in fact, it's theologically accurate to say that God pierced God. That God killed God. It only makes sense if you have an understanding of the Incarnation. It was the Father's will that the Son be struck down. Richard Phillips points out, though, that this seems to be like a house divided, which the Bible says is a very bad thing. He says it seems like there's a civil war within the Godhead. But, of course, no such thing is taking place. And why not? And the answer is because just as it is the will of the Father to, to crush the Son, this is the amazing thing of the gospel, it is the Son's will to be crushed by the Father. There is no disunity here. There is no divided house here. The shepherd comes into this world knowing that his mission is to lay down his life for the sheep. The, the shepherd comes into the world knowing full well about this sword. Uh, knowing about the wrath of God. He, he says there's a cup that I must drink. Nobody else can. He knows about this. And he comes nonetheless. And this is what we needed him to do. So who is the shepherd? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who strikes the shepherd. God himself strikes his son. Third and final question tonight. Why? Why is he struck? The text in Zechariah seems to give some conflicting answers, or at least there's a, a sort of two different things that, that happen, we could put it that way. First is that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep are scattered, right? Verse 7b, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Uh, they'll flee in terror. Uh, there's a, a, a judgment component upon the people when they lose their uh, leader. We know that removing good leaders from us, whether that's at a national level uh, or, or a governmental, political level, even at a, at a pastoral level within a church, when, when we lose good leaders, that in a sense is God's judgment upon uh, his people or, or ways, a way in which he disciplines or chastises us at the very least. And now it was in this context that Jesus applied Zechariah's text to himself. So I said earlier that uh, for the identity of the shepherd, we have everything we need in verse 7, but there are outside passages, and one of those is Matthew. Let's turn there, 26. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 30, when Jesus quotes this verse. In speaking uh, with his disciples moments before his arrest and crucifixion, this is what we find beginning in verse uh, 30. When they had, this is after the, the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Jesus is saying, Zechariah 13 is about the crucifixion, ultimately. But there's something that happens when I, the shepherd, am struck. He says immediately, the immediate um, fulfillment of that prophecy is in the, in the disciples. They all, Peter is the one who's, who's kind of infamous for denying the Lord, but all of his friends, his companions, 
flee from him. He's left all alone. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee, Peter answered him. Though they all will fall away of you, will fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Oh, Peter, right? Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And yet when we turn, we don't have to turn there, but think about Mark talks about uh, what happens uh, in the garden there when they come to arrest him, that they all run away. They're all so embarrassed that one, one of his disciples, and people think this is probably Mark himself, one of his disciples, they grab him to seize him, this disciple, and they grab his cloak. And instead of, of being arrested with Jesus, he loosens his belt, and he undresses himself, and he runs away naked, so they just have his cloak. That's how humiliating it was in his, in his mind, this disciple, to be associated with Jesus, that he'd, be rather, he'd rather be seen streaking through Jerusalem than be seen next to Jesus fully clothed. The shepherd is struck and the sheep are scattered. So this is the immediate effect of the shepherd being struck. But I want to let you know, it's not the purpose. Why does God strike the shepherd? It's not so that the sheep will be scattered. That's an effect, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is drawn out more clearly in the remainder of chapter 13. Here's what we learn. That some sheep scatter, but not the entire fold. There's a remnant that is kept, a third is the way it's put in the Hebrew. And what does God say in verse 9? I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested, and they will call upon my name. And I'll answer them, and I'll say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Isn't this interesting? That this only happens because the shepherd is struck. Somehow, friends, it is in striking the shepherd that the sheep are saved. This remnant are refined, sanctified, made holy, are fully reconciled to God such that they can say, I am his and he is mine. Somehow, the shepherd being struck, that, that needs to take place in order for this remnant to be restored How can this be? Well, you see, brothers and sisters, this is the final step. This is the most important step towards reconciliation, and that is atonement, substitution. And this is what I meant earlier when I said, if you do not understand what Zechariah chapter 12 or 13 is stating about uh, about, uh, um, the, the sheep being scattered and the shepherd being struck if you don't get verses 7 through 9 you cannot be reconciled to god this is telling us what it takes to be made right with god and what it takes is that somebody would stand in your place and say i know the wages of their sin is their death but i'm going to take their death in their place because what have we seen so far we saw that their hearts are made right right the idols are eradicated we saw that they're their ignorance is taken away. The false prophets are removed so they can understand clearly. So, so they're at a place where now they can truly fulfill the greatest commandment. Love the Lord their God with all their, their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength. Imagine if that was to happen to you tomorrow. 
Imagine if tomorrow you woke up and you, you had no desire to sin. You had, you had no yearning for, for the things of this world. You were committed wholeheartedly to God. And, and imagine if starting tomorrow you never, ever sinned again. Could that get you into heaven? And the answer is no. Because what do you do with the sins of today? Or yesterday? You see, for us to be fully restored... Fully reconciled, somebody needs to pay the price for our rebellion. And so God takes his own shepherd, the one who is his very own peer, one with him, and he leads him to the slaughter for the sake of the sheep. Do you have a substitute tonight? Do you have somebody willing to die in your place? Do you have a a death that you can claim will spare you your own? Friends, you can find that peace through faith in Jesus Christ. If you see him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, and if you don't scatter in shame, but rather you're drawn to him and you say, I'm his, he's mine, I am with this one who has been pierced by Almighty God, well, then you have nothing to fear. Because the sword of God's eternal wrath was was awoken against the Son. And that means now that sword sleeps for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we thank you for the gospel that it clearly points to. That there is a remedy for our rebellion. Uh, There is restoration and reconciliation offered to us. And it's offered to us only in the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Lord, we thank you that as it was your will to crush him, it was his will to be crushed by you. And that you lifted up your sword of wrath against the son. That you drove him through at the cross. And therefore, we never need to fear your wrath falling against us. With the freedom that this news brings to us, the joy that it brings to us, would we be changed? Would we go from this place and would we live lives dedicated entirely to you in grateful obedience? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.